And I invite you to open up in your Bibles to the book of Mark. We're going through it. We're still there in chapter 1. How many of you have heard these words, maybe it was a child of yours, saying to you, uh, you just don't understand. You don't get it. You don't understand. Uh, You don't get it. You don't know what I'm going through. Uh, These are words that sometimes are said uh, frequently in relationships we have with people around us. You don't understand. Uh, Sometimes it's it's people who are suffering, and they say that to the people who are trying to comfort them. Maybe it's not that they actually say it out loud. Maybe they just feel it. They say, you don't understand. You don't understand what I'm going through. Sometimes people in sin will say it to those around them that are maybe trying to help them or trying to comfort them or even confront them. They say, you don't understand. Sometimes we feel misunderstood. Not a hard place to be. Maybe you've been in a place like that where you were maybe falsely accused. You felt misunderstood. You're in a situation that no one really could identify with you what you were going through, or that's how you felt. You felt under, misunderstood. There are times, sometimes even in relationships, where we feel that really people aren't understanding what we're going through. We feel frustrated, perhaps, that a loved one doesn't understand us. Uh, probably one of the most frustrating things that can happen in a relationship is when um, one person just won't understand, doesn't aim to understand, cannot understand what's happening with the other person. The other person then ends up feeling isolated, maybe alone. You don't understand. It can be frustrating when you can give your concerns or your uh, problems, you share them with someone and that person can seem totally unable to understand. Totally unable to identify, totally unable to get what you're going through. It could be hard. And sometimes one of the greatest joys we have is when you know someone gets it. Uh, Oftentimes, these types of people tend to to get around one another. You you understand me. You you know what I'm going through. Uh, you You can identify with what I've experienced. If we don't have understanding, we tend to not be very sympathetic. Uh, We tend to kind of be harsh with people we don't understand, and sometimes gentleness and sympathy and tenderheartedness grows as we understand one another. Now here we're in Mark, and what we're going to encounter this morning as we study Jesus, we're going to encounter a Savior who understands. We are going to encounter a Savior who knows, who can look you in the eye and say, I understand. I get it. I know what you're going through. We're going to encounter a Savior who has endured, who has suffered, who has been tempted under terrifying circumstances, and one who therefore knows you and can understand you, and that you don't have to, in your life, go through all your suffering, all your pain, all your temptation, thinking, no one understands me. Because even if the world doesn't understand you, we're going to see this morning that you have a Savior who understands you. I remember listening to a a preacher, actually a panel of preachers, that were discussing their preaching. These were older men. They had been preaching for decades, and they were discussing uh, their life and ministry. And at one point, one of the preachers was describing how he felt he was a preacher as a young man. And he said, I don't feel like I was a very good preacher. I didn't feel like I was a very good preacher. When I first got started out, I just didn't really know how to preach. And, and one of the other preachers wanted him to express himself a little more. What do you mean? Why, why don't you feel you were good? And his answer has stuck with me. He said, you know, he reflected, he goes, you know, I wasn't a good preacher because I'd never suffered. I wasn't a good preacher because I'd never really experienced real pain in my life. It's been said that those who have suffered know how to help the suffering. It's been said that Charles Spurgeon, who was known as the Prince of Preachers, could, could give 
uh, struggling souls the comfort they needed. Why? Because he struggled deeply in his own heart and mind. He struggled with physical pain throughout his life in disease and sickness. He even struggled with internal struggle, depression and anxiety and fear. He would often be fleeing back to the cross and to his Savior when he faced dark times. It's no wonder he was able to preach to the masses and preach to the sufferers, preach to people who came to him in great and desperate need is because he had suffered. And here's what we're going to find this morning, friends. We're going to find a Savior who has suffered. And we often think about the suffering of Christ in the cross. And that's right, that it is true that we think that way, that the suffering of Christ culminates in his death for sinners on the cross. But I want us to see in what Mark in the gospel that we're reading through and preaching through, he wants us to see up front in the very first chapter that Jesus, this one that we are calling our Lord, is one who has suffered like we have been suffering. He has been tempted as we have been tempted. And that's the part we're coming up to. You see this in Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at two verses this morning. Two verses this morning. We come off the heels of Jesus' baptism. You can see that in the text, verses 9 to 11, where Jesus came uh, from Nazareth, a, a no-name city, to be baptized by John. He was baptized there. He came out of the water. The Holy Spirit descended upon him. The voice came down from heaven. In verse 11, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. His ministry began. And then... The word immediately is next. In the Greek, it's the first word after the baptism. In the ESV, uh, verse 12 starts with the Spirit. But I want to look at these verses as now leading us into a next little story. A very short, it's not as long as Matthew, it's not as long as Luke, it doesn't have all the details, but it plays a critical part in helping us understand Jesus and what he has come to do. Let, let's read verses 12 and 11 together. We're going to start drawing out from this uh, some very good news. Verse 12 starts like this. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. There it is. Not as much detail, not the specific types of temptation as the other Gospels include. Simply two verses declaring that he goes out into the wilderness. He's tempted there for 40 days by Satan. There's wild animals, a random detail added in there. And the angels are also there ministering to him. Here's what we're going to encounter. The temptation of Jesus is really good news. We're going to discuss this morning why the temptation of Jesus Christ is really good news for us. We're going to start by looking at the first verse where it notes, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Let's just think about this for a second. Jesus gets baptized, the Spirit descends on him. Immediately, what does the Spirit do? The Spirit, in his life, leads him out to this encounter. The Spirit is working in his life. Jesus is being described here as one who is led by the Spirit. Now, what I want to do, just uh, by way of implication, what we're seeing here, I need to explain something about who Jesus is. You remember on the incarnation, Jesus was eternally the Son of God. He's in existence for all time and eternity. He has never not existed. He wasn't a created being. Yesterday at our house, we had a Jehovah's Witness come, and they wanted to talk to me about Jesus. And I said, hey, let's read John 1 together. And they didn't want to, and they left. Well, why, why did I want to read John 1? Because in John 1, it speaks very clearly that the Word became flesh. The Word who is God became flesh and dwelt among us, and that's Jesus Christ. John 1 makes it crystal clear that Jesus, prior to his incarnation, was God in full, fully divine. And it always existed as the second person of the Trinity. And in his incarnation, in his coming, he became a man. He added a human nature. What this doesn't mean is that Jesus gave up being God. 
It doesn't mean that he completely emptied himself and therefore had no divinity left in him. It doesn't mean that. It means like a king taking off his royal robe and putting down his scepter, he came into the world and began to live as a man. As a man. He is living as a man and he's going to live with the same resources that he gives his church. In other words, he is not living out of the power of his divine nature. He's living as a man by the Holy Spirit. It's implied here, the Spirit comes and immediately the Spirit drives him. And if you read, especially in the Gospel of Luke, you will see that Jesus is repeatedly being described as being filled with the Spirit. So Jesus' ministry on earth, this is kind of a heady theological point, but it matters. Jesus' ministry on earth, he is doing as a man from his human nature with the power of the Spirit, with the Word of God. And if you remember from the other uh, passages in the other, other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, when Satan tempts Jesus, how does he respond? You remember? He quotes Scripture. He responds with Scripture. In other words, Jesus is filled with the Spirit, he's armed with the Word of God, and that is what he uses to fight against the temptations of the devil. Jesus has two natures, he's fully divine, he doesn't completely give it up, but he lays aside that use of his power, and in his human nature, Philippians 2.7 says, he emptied himself, he emptied himself, he took the form of a man, he lived as a man, his entire ministry is as a Man, he taps into his divine nature from time to time to prove his character and to prove his claims, but in his life and in his ministry, he is living as a man. You say, why am I making a big point out of this? Here's our first point. Here's why the temptation of Jesus Christ is good news. Here's our first point. Jesus understands human nature. Jesus understands human nature. We see this all through the book of Mark. This is going to be good news in a second. You may be asking, why is this good news that Jesus understands human nature? Uh, he, he's seen all throughout the Gospels, in particular in the Gospel of Mark, we see that he is living as a man. Chapter 4, verse 38, he's tired and he falls asleep on a stormy sea in a boat. In chapter 11, he's described as hungry. In chapter 1, it's describing him as feeling pity, compassion. There's emotion, there's feeling. In chapter 3, verse 5, he feels a righteous anger. He also feels grief. He's experiencing humanity in its fullness. He, he experiences hunger. He experiences exhaustion. He experiences pity. He experiences anger. He experiences grief. He has a human nature. He lives out of his human nature. In fact, even to clarify something a little bit, in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, it says that God sent his son, listen to this, in the likeness of human flesh. Actually, I misquoted it. It says this, in the likeness of sinful flesh. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. You say, okay, what does that mean? Well, think about it this way. When Adam and Eve were created, did they have a sinful flesh? No, there was no curse. They were created to enjoy God, to enjoy the creation. They didn't have a sin nature. Sin had not entered the world. There was no curse. Uh, after Genesis 3 and after the fall, Adam and Eve and all who came after them had a fallen body. They, had a, uh, they were under the creational curse. Now, when Jesus came, what kind of body did he take? Did he take the precurse body, the one that couldn't experience the curse, the one that couldn't die, the one that didn't experience pain or disease or sickness? Or did he come in the likeness of sinful flesh? Romans 8.3 says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, don't hear me saying that he ever sinned, and don't hear me saying that he had a sinful nature. That's not what we're saying. But he came in to earth in his body, in a body that's susceptible to pain, to hunger, to sickness. Some of you have been fighting off that sore throat. I think Jesus probably had a sore throat in his 33 years of life to disease, a body that could get exhausted and worn out 
and ultimately a body that could die. Jesus came and lived as a man. And this is the Spirit in verse 12, driving him. He is living as a man, filled by the Spirit, doesn't have a sin nature, and he will not sin, but he certainly is living as a man with a human nature in a body under creation's curse. You say, Eric, why is this good news? Have you ever been so tired? Sometimes Ashley calls it tired in her bones. (laughs) Bone tired. You ever been that kind of tired? Just exhausted? Jesus understands that. We're going to see here. You ever been sick and you felt weak? Jesus gets that. Jesus knows that. He knows what it's like. You ever been sad, sorrowful, in pain? Jesus understands human nature. Jesus understands what it's like to live life as a man. Why is it important for us to know that he understands this and he knows this and he's experienced this? Guys, because it enables us, if we can understand what Jesus has experienced, it will actually make us a lot more willing to come to him in our weakness, in our sicknesses, in our brokenness, because we look at him and go, he knows. He's done this. He's been through this. And remember what I was saying at the beginning, if, if we have the sense that someone doesn't understand me, why am I going to keep telling him my problems? If all that he does when I tell him my problems is close himself off and he doesn't really get it and he shows no concern, he's never experienced anything like it, how can I trust him to bear my burdens? And we have a Savior who has suffered in this way because he has a human nature. He understands your human nature. Now, it gets better. It goes beyond this. Watch this. Look at this. There's a word in these two verses that comes up in three different ways or three different times. It says, immediately the Spirit drove him out into the what? The, the, The wilderness. Verse 13, and he was in the wilderness 40 days. It's not included here in Mark, but the others include that he's fasting for these 40 days. He's in the wilderness 40 days. He's fasting. He's uh, in there, and it, it has this other little detail that the other Gospels leave out, and it makes us wonder, why is this included? But I think there's a reason. Uh, the word comes up again in a different form, describing the animals. He was with what kind of animals? Wild animals, okay? So he got wilderness mentioned once, wilderness mentioned again, and then you got wild animals. And so somehow, Paul or Mark is in this trying to emphasize the wildness of where he is. You get that? It's coming up. This is a, just a good principle of Bible study and Bible interpretation. If there's a repeated word, there's probably a reason that word is repeated. Well, why is Mark trying to repeat this word? Uh, he's in the wilderness. Did you, did you get it the first time? If you didn't, he, he's in the wilderness, and there's animals around him. You get what kind of animals there are? They're wild animals. He's there. What's, what's, what's happening here? Jesus uh, was, was baptized in the Jordan. There's this probably 70-mile stretch of land with a lot of wilderness all around it. And there was a lot of places for him to go that would have been totally isolated. And he goes somewhere in the Judean wilderness. No cities nearby. No roads. No inns. No Motel 6s. No nothing. He's got nothing to lay his head down on. Why is this significant? Why does Mark make this detail uh, important? Why does he emphasize the wildness of where Jesus is? There's actually a, a, a very interesting point here. Very interesting point that helps us understand what in the world Jesus is doing in going out into the wilderness in the first place. Uh, go back to Genesis with me in your mind. Adam and Eve are created. Adam and Eve are put into a what? They're put into a wilderness? No, they're put into a garden. They're put into a garden, and God gives Adam and Eve both a commission. They, get, they have a job to do. And what they're supposed to do in Genesis 1, what they're supposed to do is to rule the earth and subdue the earth and have dominion over the earth. That's their role, Adam and Eve together, to spread the glory of God around the globe as they rule and subdue the earth that God gave them. Well, what specifically did that mean? Well, Adam was given a job to work and to keep the garden. In other words, he was a cultivator. (laughs) The first man that ever was created was a gardener. And he was meant to work that garden, keep that garden, and spread the beauty of that garden around the globe so that all the world would be filled with the beauty of the Garden of Eden. 
That was the intention, the verdant beauty of that garden spreading to the glory of God as Adam and Eve kept uh, God's loving law and obeyed him. They were to spread his beauty from uh, sea to shining sea as what they're supposed to do in the created world. What did they do? They sinned and they failed. And what happened when they sinned and they failed? There was a curse. And yes, the curse of sin, but also God gave a curse to the world, to the ground. Genesis 3.17, if you want to see it, you can. I'll just read it to you. Genesis 3.17, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, he says, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. In other words, this gardening plan that they had to fill the world with the beauty of the garden is suddenly incredibly difficult. Thorns, thistles, it's going to take hard work. It's going to be a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to get this to work just for you to eat. It's going to be difficult. Why? Because the ground itself is now cursed. And so what happens? The wilderness becomes the result of the failure of Adam and Eve. Why is there a wilderness any place in the world? It's because the garden wasn't preserved and spread like it was supposed to be. And so all throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, wilderness is nearly synonymous with a place of temptation, a a place of curse, a place of judgment. It's always associated with sin. I mean, you could even go back to the Old Testament Israelites in in the wilderness, and that's where they sinned against God, and they complained against God, and God had to express his judgment against them. It's described in Deuteronomy, the wilderness is great and terrible. It's described as a place of flinty rock and fiery serpents and scorpions. It's described as a howling waste. In fact, you remember when the Israelites were brought out by uh, Moses, and it's so bad, and they get so thirsty, and they long to go back into Egypt because at least there they had better food, or at least that's how they remembered it. And they say to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die? In other words, they go out into the wilderness, they believe that there's no way to live out there. That's how bad it is. It's filled with all manner of danger. And this is what Mark is bringing up. He is in the wilderness. He's in the wilderness. And to highlight this reality, he goes, he's in the wilderness. And let me just point out a detail just to make sure you don't miss it. He's with the wild animals. Now again, you can go back to the paradise garden. And what were the animals like back then? I mean, all the dogs were good dogs. You know, all the animals were tame. There were no bad dogs in the Garden of Eden. They came when they were told, and Adam had all the animals come, and all the animals would come. And remember, he named them all. In Genesis, he was naming them. They're all tame. They're all good. They're all domesticated. They're all good. And then what happens after the fall? Well, the curse comes, the creational curse comes, and now suddenly these animals are wild. The wild is there. In fact, uh, the wilderness is described in the prophets as a haunt of jackals. There are wild beasts that now inhabit the wilderness as a result of the curse. Listen, the Spirit comes upon Jesus, fills Him, empowers Him, and drives Him where? Straight into the heart of the curse. Straight into the heart of of danger, straight into the difficulty of the fallen world. Here's going to be our second point. First was this, that Jesus understands human nature. Secondly, Jesus understands the curse. He understands the cursed world we live in. He understands the dangers and the fears that we experience in the world. What kind of animals would we be describing here? Uh, I looked this up and did a little study on the Judean wilderness and the kinds of animals that would appear in here. You got foxes, they're probably the least dangerous, but then you got lions, you got leopards, you got bears, wolves, jackals, and hyenas. I've heard of stories about places where there are hyenas, where cities need to lock the gates before the sun goes down or else the hyenas will come in and pose a great threat to all people who are trying to sleep in that city. I mean, this is dangerous. This is terrifying, actually. 
Could you imagine this? I mean, I know some people who won't step foot into a room if they know there's a mouse nearby. Imagine trying to sleep. Jesus is in the wilderness. There's no gate to close. There's no walls to walk into. There's no door to shut out the wilderness. The wild is all around you. He is in the middle of the creational curse. He is going to experience fear and danger. This is graphic. And the wild animals, little detail there, actually heightens the graphic nature of this event. Imagine. I mean, use your sanctified imagination with me for a second. Night falls. Jesus is out there in the wilderness. There's no walls around you. Maybe a bush over here, and maybe you found a cave nearby, but you might not want to try the cave because who knows what's in there. You're a bit worried. You hear a howl over here, closer one over there. Something's rustling in the bushes. Any of you sleeping well on that night? Get a good night's sleep in the wilderness? I don't think any of us are getting a good night's sleep. How about night number two? Did you get used to it yet? Night number three? I mean, Jesus is here for 40 days. 40 days. And you might wonder, well, what are the angels ministering to him? I got to believe that one of the things they're doing, it's hard to nail down exactly what they're doing, but I think they're protecting him from some of the dangers of the wilderness. Jesus is out there. Night falls. Jesus is experiencing as a man a part of the danger of the creational curse. He is away from the cultivated land. He's away from the cities. He's away from the comforts of a community. He's alone. And he's in a place where the curse is being brought upon him, the creation's curse, in a big, big way. Now, by the way, he's fasting. Okay? He's fasting 40 days. And Matthew says that after fasting 40 days, he was hungry. That's one of the biggest understatements in the whole Bible, I think. He's, he's hungry. Like, he's hungry. He wants a bite. Uh, he is beyond hungry. Uh, you go one day without eating food, you're going to be starving. At least that's the language we use. I'm starving. Jesus doesn't go one day, doesn't go two days. Uh, he is going 40 days without eating. After two weeks, his body is beginning to break down physically. He is decaying. After six weeks, almost six weeks like this, which was the extent of his time in the wilderness, uh, he would have been bone thin. His, his eyes would have been bulging out of his face. His lips would have been parched. His arms and legs would have looked like toothpicks. He would have been frail. He would have been weak. He would have been in pain. I mean, what kind of agony? And think about this. On top of it, he's not sleeping at night. What kind of sleep is he able to get in the night with the threatening uh, animals all around him, these wild beasts around him? He, he is suffering the curse. Listen, Jesus understands the curse. This is why this is emphasized. You know, Jesus went here on purpose. <laughs> this wasn't an accident. The Spirit filled him and drove him. This was part of God's design. It was part of the redemptive mission. It was part of what God wants to show for his people, uh, the great lengths that he goes to love and identify with his people. He's going behind enemy lines here. He's going straight into the heart of darkness. He's not just going to dip his toe into the pool of the curse. He's diving Head first in. Why? Why is he doing this? Why, why was he going right into the curse in the wilderness to face, face off with the wild beasts in the wilderness and the creational curse? Why is he doing this? Here, here it is. He, he wants to be a sympathetic high priest. He wants to be a savior who understands and knows us. This is an act of Jesus saying, I do love you. I want you to know I love you. I want you to know I understand you. I want you to know that I know that I've been where you are. 
I've suffered like you have. I have been weak. I have been tired. I have been afraid. I have been exhausted. I have been all these things. I'm listening. I care. I know what you're going through. This is Jesus demonstrating a desire to and an ability to identify with us. We live in a cursed world, don't we? I mean, we live in a broken world, a broken world. And you see, Jesus doesn't just come and experience hunger. He experiences the absolute worst of human hunger, starvation. I mean, people die in periods of time less than 40 days of having not eaten. He doesn't just experience being tired. He experiences a kind of prolonged exhaustion that would have taken a toll on his body, not just a sleepless night, but the worst kind of nightmarish terror in the beast-filled wilderness. Have you struggled with want? Have you struggled with hunger? Have you struggled with you're just feeling so exhausted? Have you struggled with feeling afraid? Jesus understands this. He went to the curse so that in experience, experientially he could understand what this is and he could communicate to his church, I've been there. I know, I know, I've been in there. So whenever you're tired and you're sick and you're afraid and, and you're sleepless, you're, you're battling insomnia, you're, you're exhausted, that's the result of living in a cursed world. And Jesus went straight into the darkness of the curse to experience that so that you in looking to him go, he knows I can come to him. I know, he knows me. He knows what I've gone through. He, he understands this. But it's not just the beasts that are there. Uh, there's a worst, a worse enemy, a more evil enemy, a more powerful enemy than any animal, and that is Satan. Verse 13, he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. So he's in the howling wilderness. He's hungry beyond measure. He's exhausted from sleepless nights and fear. He's in danger of wild animals. And he encounters someone much darker, much more dangerous, the predator of all predators. In fact, Peter calls him one who prowls about like a roaring lion. There might have been wild lions in the wilderness, but this is the ultimate roaring lion. It's Satan himself, the adversary. He has come. He's described in many different ways. He's described by many different names. He's sometimes called the tempter. He's sometimes called the enemy. He's sometimes called the lowercase g, God of this world. He's sometimes called Beelzebul or Belial. He's sometimes called the prince of the power of the air, the adversary, the deceiver of the whole world, the father of lies, a murderer he's called, an accuser. Uh, in First John, John calls him, perhaps summing all of it up, he is the evil one. Jesus called him three different times in the Gospel of John. He's the ruler of this world. This is what he is doing. He is in the wilderness. He is encountering Jesus, and he, it says, is tempting him. He comes. He wants to derail the redemptive purposes of God. He wants to shut down what God is doing with his son, Jesus Christ. And so he meets him at his most vulnerable point, and Jesus goes to meet him as well. This is a collision, this is a confrontation. Jesus knew he was going to be there. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, when Matthew's describing the temptation, it says the Spirit filled him and he went to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I mean, that's why he went. He's on a mission. He's like, I've got, got to face off with the enemy. And so he goes. And what does it say? It says that Satan's there for 40 days tempting him. In Matthew and Luke, there are described three particular temptations. But what we get from Mark is this that the entirety of the 40 days was temptation, culminating in these three specific temptations that the others mention. But here the language is clear that he is there 40 days being tempted by Satan. Satan didn't show up on the last day and try to tempt him with three different tricks. Satan was there all along. And Satan was there trying to bring him to sin 
to distract him from mission. Now, I want to talk just real briefly about what it even means that Jesus was tempted. What does it mean that Jesus was tempted? Jesus doesn't have a sinful nature. Remember that. He's not tempted in the same way as we are often. But we have to understand what does it actually mean to be tempted. Let's start by understanding there's two different kinds of temptations that we often talked about. External temptations, and those are obviously the ones that come from the outside. These are the ones that show up in your life. You might not even be pursuing them. You might be pursuing righteousness. You might be pursuing the Lord. You might be pursuing love for God and neighbor. And sometimes temptation just swoops in and it's from the outside and it presents an opportunity for you to sin. Your boss tells you to cut some corners at work. External temptation. You are driving and a billboard appears in front of you and it's meant to tempt you to think and act in ways that are sinful. External temptation. Starting on the outside. Your friends at school are threatening you to tell a lie. And they'll bully you if you don't. External temptation. Now often, external temptations are then the cause of internal temptations. So there's two. The external temptations is the result of living in a broken world. This happens in our lives. We are tempted by things on the outside. And then, though, there are internal temptations. I want you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1 to see this. This This is very important for us to understand. Because we think sometimes that the main problem with our sin is that we are facing external temptations. And if we could just remove all those external temptations, we wouldn't sin anymore. Well, that's a lie. Because sin comes from the heart. And look at what James chapter 1 verse 13 says. James chapter 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. Listen to this though, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, verse 15, desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth Death. Where does sin begin? In the heart. In desires of the heart. Let me ask you a question. Is desire sin? No. Of course not. We desire God. We desire to love people. We can desire comfort. You can desire a good night's sleep. You can desire a good meal. None of those things are sin. But what happens? Look at the verses. Let's see what it says. Each person, verse 14, is tempted. Okay, when does it become temptation? When he's lured and enticed by his own desire. In other words, the desire gets kind of out of control and the desire starts leading you away from the truth and from righteousness. And what happens in verse 15 is the desire conceives. It conceives something. And then there's sin in the desire, and the desire then gives birth to sin. Desire is not sin, but desire is the soil where sin sprouts into our lives. Think of it this way. You want sleep. Is that bad? Some of you are like, amen. Sleep, please, sleep. I want more sleep. You desire sleep. That's not a bad thing to want. And then your children aren't staying in their bed. (laughs) Suddenly, that desire ain't so righteous anymore. Maybe you're feeling impatient. Maybe you want to have a good lunch. Someone calls you with a problem that you don't feel like dealing with. Suddenly, you're inconvenienced and brought in to help someone else with their issues. And you're in your heart. The desire is now you are angry, impatient, or you are being inconvenienced, and sinful attitudes begin to fester in your heart. Desire is not sin. 
desires not sin. It's not wrong to want good things, but often good things become ultimate things and then we begin doing bad things. We begin to sin. Desires are not sin, but they can become lures. They can entice us. And so we must always be concerned about our desires. If you want to be a faithful Christian, watch your heart. Watch your heart. Watch what you love. Watch what you like. Watch what you desire. Now let's ask this. What's happening to Jesus? Okay, what's happening here? Uh, What clearly is happening is he has external temptations. Satan's there. Wilderness is there. That's a temptation to, to be afraid. That's a temptation to doubt. Satan, by the way, is offering him all kinds of things to distract him from the mission God has for him. He's tempting him to doubt God. He's tempting him to disobey God. Satan's tempting him to drift from the mission God has given him. Satan is tempting Jesus to skip past the cross and go straight to the kingdom. He's, he's tempting him to give up, to give up what God has called him to do. He's He's tempted. Let's ask this. Is Jesus experiencing internal temptation? Well, we know this. He's experiencing human desire. Remember, he lived as a human. Okay? He lived as a human. In other words, what's happening in these 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness? He's experiencing hunger. That's a desire for food. He's exhausted. That's a desire for rest. He's physically feeble. That's a desire for comfort. Jesus is experiencing human desires and all manner of external temptation is coming at him and there's all kinds of internal desire that he has. But listen, here's the difference between Jesus and me and Jesus and you is that in his desires, in his human desires, he never once sinned. Not once. The desire, not even for a split second, became sinful. The desire never for a split second caused him to doubt his loving father. The desire never for a split second caused him to want to disobey his master. Why? He had a higher desire, a greater desire than anything the temptations brought in his life. And that higher, greater desire was, may my father be glorified in my life as I obey him at every point. He came to be tempted here, but not to ever succumb to that temptation. This is what he came to do. In verse 1 of Matthew 4, he came to be tempted in the wilderness by Satan. So so what's going on here? Let's bring this home. Let's land the plan here. Jesus goes into the wilderness in his human nature, led by the power of the Spirit, to face off with the devil. Why? There's really twofold reasons. One is he is going to demonstrate his authority over Satan by not submitting to the temptation. But here's the second thing he's doing. In doing this, in going straight to the wilderness, in going to the heart of the curse, in facing off with the enemy, in facing the suffering of under creation's curse, here's what he's doing. He is going to suffer and be tempted. Why? so that he can help those who suffer in their temptation. Go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. This is so good for us to remember. We first are making the point that Jesus understands human nature. Secondly, that Jesus understands the curse. And thirdly here, Jesus understands temptation. He understands temptation. You are not alone. You don't have a Savior who doesn't understand it. He's sympathetic. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, for because He Himself has suffered when tempted. He, He suffered in the temptation there. And because he suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Are you being tempted? You have a Savior who has been right into the heart of the curse in the human nature that God gave him. And he faced off with the enemy. And he faced off in temptation. And he suffered in the midst of it. And he did not sin and fail 
And because He has done that, you can get comfort from Him. You can go to Him. He understands. He is not the type of person that laughs at your struggle. He sympathizes. Hebrews 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Listen, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay, that's great to know. Well, what should I do about it? Look at verse 16 of Hebrews 4. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Listen, don't let your weakness, your frailty, your feebleness, your temptation cause you to think that God's not available to help you. That Christ is distant removed. That he doesn't understand any of this stuff. Don't, sometimes there's a theological problem that we think because Jesus is divine, and he is, we think there's no possible way he can understand me. That is a lie. Because he in his humanity faced real temptation. In real creational curse, he lived in a human nature. Why? So that you can go to him knowing he understands. He understands my humanity. He understands my frailty. He understands I'm weak. He understands that I am very, very feeble. And listen to this. In in my humanity, you know what he provides for me and for you? He provides his Holy Spirit. In fact, he himself dwells in us. In 1 John 4, 4, it says this. He who is in you, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Do you know that? You ever been tempted to sin and you thought, oh, I can't get out of this one. I'm going down that downward spiral. There's no way to get out of this. That is a lie. Jesus, the one who at his weakest point overcame the devil, dwells in you. And because he dwells in you, he is greater than Satan in all Satan's attack. You never have to sin. You never have to. Sin no longer has dominion over you. You've been set free from the chains and the bondage of sin. The one who was tempted and tried in every respect now dwells in you. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And if Christ, the one who was tempted at his weakest point, is living within me, then I don't have to give in to temptation. Man, when you are in sin or at least on the precipice. You're, you're, you're almost there. There's the temptation. It just seems to have you under its spell, and it's bringing you in. You got to look that sin in the eye and say, I don't have to do this. I don't have to. Because the one who dwells in me is greater than the one that's in the world. And the one who dwells in me is the one who conquered sin. The one who dwells in me is the one who was tempted, and so he understands, but he never failed. And so in his strength, I can overcome temptation. You can overcome temptation. He understands when you're tempted, and he also gives you the resources to overcome temptation. He understands the curse of this world. He understands what it is to be broken. He understands our problems. He understands. I mean, Jesus is the one who said, blessed are those who mourn. And he was the one who lived that out better than anyone else. He understood what it meant to live in a dark world, to face a curse, to face hunger, to face exhaustion, to face pain, to be vulnerable. He really knows this stuff because he experienced it. And so in your weakness, in your vulnerability, don't run away from Christ. How many of us in our weakness, we cover ourselves with shame and we think that he won't understand, and we're so ashamed, we run the opposite direction. And here is Jesus going to great lengths to suffer in his temptation so that you know he knows, so that you can come to him and recognize he he gets it. Come with your shame. He will not laugh at your weakness. Come with your vulnerability. He will not mock you for it. He lived under that curse. He knows how frail you are. He himself was that frail. He was really tested. He was really tempted. And so he's really sympathetic. Guys, this is good news. Run to Christ. And if you have never run to Christ, if you've never given up the the, the things of this world to, to pursue Christ, 
let me invite you, if you're not a Christian, you have offered to you this morning a Savior who will know you, who will understand you, who will invite you in, who will comfort you and embrace you. He will identify with you. And as Mark will go on to describe, he will go to the cross to pay for your sin so that you don't have to pay for it forever. And he rises from the dead. And right now he's alive and he's the savior of everyone who trusts him. And he is a lover of sinners. And so you sinners who maybe have never come to Christ, you can come. You can come. And if you're on the opposite end of the spectrum, you're, you're the self-righteous person. Let me remind you, Jesus was tempted. Why do we always try to avoid admitting the reality that we're tempted? Can you say it to someone? Can you admit it? Can you say, I am tempted to sin? We are. Can we be honest with each other? Jesus was tempted to sin. And sometimes we like to act like we're impervious to any kind of temptation. We're not. And so let the example of Christ, if we're self-righteous, if we, we try to lean, we often sometimes lean into trying to present a, a certain version of ourselves that is, that is so impervious to temptation. And Jesus' example it reminds us even he was tempted in his weakness. He was without sin. But it should free us up to admit that we are also attempted people. We don't need to hide that. Whoever we are, whether we are not yet Christian, or whether we are self-righteous, or whether we tend to doubt, this text encourages us to remember we have a Savior who has identified with us. He has become human, to experience the human nature, the frailty of human nature that we experience. He has entered the curse to experience the worst that this cursed world has to offer. And then he was tempted by the worst of enemies for 40 days in his weakest position, and yet he overcame sin. And why did he do this? So that you can have a sympathetic Savior. And when you come to him, his eyes big with love and understanding, he says, I know. I know. And he helps you in your time of need. Let's go to him. Let's, let's pray right now. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this good news that you are sympathetic. How hopeless we would be if we had to somehow present to you a, a perfect put together version of ourselves before you would love us. But rather, we are reminded here that you know weakness, you know pain, you know vulnerability. And so we can come to you in our weakness, in our pain, in our suffering, in our sorrow, in our agony. And we could give it to you and, and we know that you can identify with us. You suffered when you were tempted. You're able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And so, Lord, we are encouraged to come to you and not to run from you in our shame. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us in this. Help us to flee to you at the sign of temptation, at the first sight of our weakness and our frailty, that you would be our first, our first person that we go to for help in our great times of need. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.